Hi, welcome to the Bloom Podcast. He's Steve, a clinical hypnotherapist. And she's Susie, parent, cake baker and cancer patient. And together we talk about different ways to get through tough times. And meet great guests who share their amazing stories. Hey Steve. Hey Susie. Do you remember, do you remember, do you remember when we started this podcast thing a year ago, you dismissed the whole pandemic you thought it was going to be a flash in the pan. <laughs> what? <laughs> You're making that up. You did. That's not even close to being true. No, no, you did. You said you didn't want to mention it or talk about it because it would mark the time we were recording the podcast as it would date the podcast. It would date the episode as a as a pandemic episode, like it was going to be over within a week or something like that. Actually, that is true. I do admit that much. I do. It's a fair cop. And here we are a year later. I mean, not a year of podcast, but certainly a year of pandemic. A year or a, a decade or a hundred years, whatever. Yeah, yeah, it feels like a lifetime. Every <laughs> every day has taken a month during some of that, that lockdown period. Well, I've been fond of saying, I may have mentioned to you before, I have been saying to clients a lot that if you've just got through this past year and you're just hanging on, and even if it feels like you're hanging on by your fingertips, then you have done well and you should be kind to yourself because it has been all kinds of stressful and difficult for, for many, many people. It's interesting when I chat with my friends, a lot of people will talk about how hard it's been, but everybody is, is I think, quick to really acknowledge that other people are doing it tougher. And that's a truism, right? There's always someone who's who's got it harder than you. Yeah, well, occasionally, playfully, I will ask my client to imagine all 9 billion humans lined up and ask them whereabouts in that lineup they might place themselves and to feel a great deal of sympathy for the poor bugger who's right down the absolute end. <laughs> <laughs> that's an interesting question. Where do you sit yourself in the, that line of 9 billion? Oh, I'm definitely at the top end. Definitely. What I don't like about, I mean, of course, it, it shows a sense of perspective and and it shows a sense of, of humility and of compassion for others. What I don't like about it, though, is when it's used, and people do use it this way, to kind of berate themselves as if they're not entitled to their to their pain or to their stress because they haven't got it that bad. That never seems to me to be helpful. Yeah, I, I agree very much with that, actually, because even though I mean, by definition of having access to clean water, we are in a better state than X percentage of the population or whatever. But that doesn't negate what we go through. That doesn't, it doesn't mean that if someone is having a hard time, they're not having a hard time and they should all be grateful because think of the poor, starving people. And that's the social media reflex, isn't it? You can see a pile on when someone says you're, you're entitled and privileged because you're talking about how hard it is for you. And, you know, I mean, sometimes you can sort of sympathize a little bit with that thought when you see people that from the outside look like they've got everything, they've got it all going on and nothing to complain about. But it is an absolute truism. You don't know what other people are going through. People that look as if they've got it great on the surface may be suffering dreadfully. Yeah, though, I mean, there's a line. <laughs> what what about the, uh, there was someone in the media just the other day who was complaining that they're in isolation and they have to wash their own hair because they can't get a hairdresser <laughs> in. They've never washed their own hair, apparently. Yes. Do you, where's your, how's your sympathy sitting on that one? Well, it does show a lack of uh, insight, doesn't it, as to how that, that, I mean, even just at that level, how do you think people are going to respond to that? And if you really expect an outpouring of sympathy and a Kickstarter campaign to fund you a hairdresser, then you have another, as people like to say these days, you have another think coming. 
it's a lack of media training as much as of insight into into other people's mm. yeah other people's thought processes but i mean that's not what most of what's going on i think what most of what's going on is we're all we're all staggering along some doing okay some doing a bit less than okay we all know there are other people doing much worse somewhere else poor sods we've all got our own burdens to carry and if your load was already a full one before the corona thing it may be enough to just really break you that you know you may have just been felt like you were just about hanging on by your fingernails and then the villain comes along in his jackboots and starts stamping on your on your hands on the edge of the cliff and you just feel that there's just no way that you're going to be able to keep going at all yeah i think it's tested our resilience in ways we can't imagine good word that resilience it is. I was thinking about it. I mean, they talk a lot, as a parent, schools talk a lot about resilience and building resilience into your kids. What does it mean to you? Well, the word itself comes from the Latin for to bounce back, which I think is, is quite helpful, actually, because it, it suggests there's, there's two parts to resilience, aren't there? That must be about the only Latin root origin of a word that is actually yeah. <laughs> uh, related to what the word's about now. Well, quarantine is related to the, it means 40 days, doesn't it? Which was the duration of the quarantine. So that's another one. I didn't know that not happening to have a dictionary with me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yes. Yeah, so resilience has got, kind of got two parts to it that you need, in a sense, you need something to be resilient against. I mean, I don't think it's resilience if you're hopping along happily when the sun is shining, you've got a few dollars in your pocket, the family's going well, everything in the garden is lovely. That's not resilience. Resilience comes about when some of those things don't apply and you're you're feeling like you're being beaten down. And that's the first part of it. I like what somebody said about life. You know, problems and difficulties are the, the roughage of life. That without them, it's not the same. It's like that talking head song about heaven, you know, is a party where everyone arrives at exactly the same time. That it's a fantasy. It's silly to imagine that things can always be perfect. So there are always going to be difficulties. And it's a question of how well we can ride them out. And I'm glad to hear that you're a parent of much younger children than than ours. I'm glad that it's part of the rhetoric and that it's it's something that they're very focused on. What do they say? Mainly they say, come to this parent information evening. And the poor parent says, really, I can't. It's Why is it at 7.30 just when I'm feeding the kids dinner? I suppose they want people to understand that like any system or process, uh, as a child goes through school, they are going to hit bumps in the road. And it is about how they, yeah, it's exactly what you said. It's about how that child and also about how those parents process it. Maybe it's self-interest as much as anything else to reduce the number of parents who, you know, <laughs> request a meeting with the principal because um, little Barbara didn't get the part in the school play or whatever. My word, that's a very cynical view, Susie. <laughs> I mean, isn't that, shouldn't that be what schools are about, that helping to make sure as far as they can that the children that they turn out are going to be able to roll with the punches that life will deliver? I think so. I wouldn't be a teacher for anything because of the number of things they have to try and inject into children and the demands that parents and the system places on them is terrible, I think. Can we learn to be more resilient? I mean, is it an inbuilt trait or is it something we can work on or a bit of both? There's a lot of debate about that, actually. Psychologists don't seem to be agreed on that. My own view is that, of course, it is to some extent. Just as some kids grow taller than others and some kids have got a great sense of humour and other kids are artistic, they do all have their own character and characteristics. And it seems to me that they do arrive with a certain amount of their operating system built in. 
But that isn't the same as saying that you can't do anything about it. Of course, of course you can. And are there specific tools that a person or techniques that someone can use or practice to find resilience or to boost their resilience? Yeah. And again, the um, the research seems to not be united on this because quite a lot of the research focuses on what the child does, you know, how the child responds. And there are other researchers who want to know about the circumstances around the child, how their family is, how their friendship group is, how their community is. And of course, neither has got a monopoly on the truth. It's it's all of those things. It seems to be important that a child has at least one relationship with an adult that is characteristically healthy, you know, consistent, supportive, positive. It doesn't seem like you have to have an awful lot of that, but you do have to have some of it. Otherwise, you're in deep, deep trouble. And I suppose that's because you can imagine that you need to have a sort of role model to see what functioning in the world looks like. And that can be a teacher, I think. I actually remember when I was a soccer coach, I could sense that for some of the kids, I was, you know, even in a very limited way, because they were only seeing me for a couple of hours for training during the week. And then for the game at the weekend, they were going through stuff, you know, their parents were splitting up or they had a single parent who wasn't coping well or whatever. And I felt it was like part of my responsibility in a small way to just be that consistent adult that was happy to see them and and wanted to see them do well. You had to be the sane parent, as we talked about in our yes, this, episode on divorce. The sane parent. <laughs> <laughs> but what about for adults? I mean, that makes sense for kids that it's partly personality type, it's partly their environment and role modelling and the support they get. What about for those of us who've made it to to adulthood? We can still learn. Yes. When you and I started this podcast, we set out to explore this. You and I have been looking back over what we've done. And it's kind of been implicit in a lot of what we've done, but we haven't been very explicit about it. We've certainly had a lot of great lessons from our guests about, you know, what they did and what they found helped. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, this whole podcast is about resilience. Your mojo, as we've termed it, which is probably not a great search term, is it? Now that we've now that we've got a bit of experience, who's putting in mojo into a podcast <laughs> and looking for us? They might be looking for something, but probably not what we've got to offer. <laughs> Let's look at some examples from episodes where people have really called out resilience and how to find it and how to use it. For me, one of our most, I think, powerful episodes and fascinating episodes was Down the Rabbit Hole, where Sue and Gordon talk about becoming caught up in a cult and how they nearly lost everything financially, their children each other and then but then managed to to get themselves out of that yes it was fascinating how they've reflected a lot on it and i mean you've got to admire people who can be so i mean not in a kind of um, panglossian way that it was it was all a great thing and they were glad that it happened certainly not that but they've clearly thought about it a lot about why they got into it in the first place and their responsibility i suppose for it when sue said that she to paraphrase her she said she felt like there was something missing yeah about herself and that made her seek and in some ways made her vulnerable to people who were presenting as an answer. I was really impressed by how they look back at it. We don't look back on this as victims. We chose, and I'm saying we, Susan can contradict you, of course, <laughs> but I chose, or probably a better way to put it, I chose and made all those decisions. For right reasons, wrong reasons, I made them. Therefore, I am a creator, not a victim. And that is absolutely how I live my life. So their outlook on it, their resilience, if you like, comes from 
taking control over what happened and saying this is something that we did. It's not something that happened to us. It was, it, it's taking ownership, gives them their feeling of power over the situation they're in. Yes, that is highly impressive, but I'd like to unpack it just a little bit more. How do you think that that worked, taking responsibility? What does that do? How does that change the situation? Is it that it makes a person stronger? I chose to do this. I'm not a victim. Just the statement of power makes that person feel stronger and and more able to process what happened. Yes, it must be something to do with that, mustn't it? That I mean, clearly they were manipulated, whether it was intentional or not. You know, you'd have to listen to the whole episode to get a better sense of that. And I, I would encourage anyone who hasn't heard it already to do so. But you can imagine somebody else saying, oh, you know, poor me. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. I was I was a little bit vulnerable at the time. This was those leeches got their claws into me. Not that leeches have claws, but you know what I mean. <laughs> and <laughs> we were terribly exploited. Poor me. Our life is now not what it could have been. Is that something to do with coming back to resilience? Not necessarily having power, but having ownership over your own actions. Does that help with resilience? Psychologists like to talk about the internal locus of control as something they want to measure. In other words, how responsible do people, the story that they tell about themselves, how much of it are they responsible for? Or is it always, you know, my daddy didn't love me. I went to a crap school. Things didn't work out for me at university. I've never been lucky at work. I've never been lucky in love. That's a low locus of control as opposed to saying, well, nobody's life is perfect. Let's see what we can do about it and let's get on with it. And that makes a healthier mental outlook, having that framework. Yes, it must do, mustn't it? That you just sit down like Job and suffer what God is going to inflict upon you if you are if you have a low locus of control. You feel helpless, so you act helpless. And it's amazing, I think, how often people think that the way that they see the world is the way the world is, as opposed to just being a perspective. I had a client yesterday. She said something like, but of course, all men are like that, aren't they? They will step over the laundry on the floor and they would never think to raise a hand or stack the dishwasher or think of, and this is a woman, you know, going through serious health things. And I had to sort of say, well, certainly sounds like yours is. <laughs> Let's focus on that. She's obviously never met my husband. Loves a bit of laundry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of control, thinking about another episode, we had Santa for our Christmas special and Santa spoke about planning the best time to plant a tree in terms of how to having that that forethought that foresight the planning can make family relationships stronger and better can make a better christmas yes i often think of this when people have relationship difficulties that the time to work something out is not in the middle of the argument because you you start to justify your position you know you get emotional you're trying to win and you're trying to be the one who's in the right, as opposed to what actually are we really talking about here? You know, that thing that you, I mean, you were just talking there about laundry. If you happen to have a crap partner and you go in and throw the dirty clothes at them and say, you're thoughtless and, and heartless, you never lift a finger, you're lazy, you treat me like a slave, that person is not going to respond well, I would imagine, because that's not the story that's going through their head, clearly. So why do we do it then? <laughs> well, we're going to get to that in a little while, aren't we? When we get to talking about what we're really like. Let's just hear that clip from Father Christmas, because I like the It was a rather elliptical way that he had of actually presenting it. As my friends in China like to say, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The 
best t- sorry santa what does not getting it really <laughs> oh. oh come on it's obvious isn't it the best time to plan your christmas isn't christmas it's way way ahead you know, before we get caught up in all the pressures and the nonsense that goes with it so a few weeks after you've packed away the decorations have a bit of a chat about next year and work out how you can make things better and don't don't try to fix christmas on the run while it's happening it's too late by then wise words santa and as you say it sounds so sensible but it's much harder to put into practice than it sounds, isn't it? Is it because we have an emotional reaction and then we're just not in control of or not in as much control of what we say and what we do and how we're feeling winds us up and then next thing we're flinging the laundry basket? Yeah, exactly right. There's an old story about the brain, the tripartite structure of the brain. I'm not sure that it's actually considered to be accurate anymore, but it's a good story and it's got some sense to it that we have a a kind of reptilian part to our brain, which is responsive, but not thoughtful. You know, it's kind of animal and behaves instinctively so that if you are provoked, you will respond without the intervention of your conscious brain, which is the frontal cortex part, the part that can reflect and go, well, that's funny. I don't know why. Why is he being like that? He's, He's not usually that. He's not trying to be hurtful, I don't suppose, but that's certainly the way that it's coming across. So your instinctive part, your fear part, I suppose, just fights back and lashes out. And before you know it, you're never, you, you've got far more light than heat and you're never going to get progress from there. So we behave emotionally when we know we shouldn't. We plan Christmas at the last minute when we know it would be a better idea to give it a bit longer. Do you remember the uh, the episode on divorce, Steve, with the lawyer, the divorce lawyer, and the way we finished that episode? Oh, let's find the clip and drop it in. We're all just fancy monkeys. <laughs> fancy monkeys. Yeah, walking around in clothes and trying to do our best with our primal brains. <laughs> <laughs> our primal brains. Yeah. So with our primal brains, we're trying to do our best. I like that. And I think that's what we're saying is we the best laid plans, but then we end up as fancy monkeys. Because our brains are not designed for what we use it for these days. You know, it's designed for a world in which there are predators out there who can take your life any time that you let your guard down for a moment. You know, the, the, the social relationships that we may have had 40,000, 60,000, 80,000, 100,000, half a million years ago are very unlike the ones that we've got now. And yet that's our operating system that under the surface, that's still how we actually operate. So if we are not so far under the surface, we're the monkeys. On the surface, we're the fancy monkeys. How do we get our brains under our control and do the things we know we should be doing? How do we find that resilience? How do we survive the pandemic without flinging the laundry basket around and shouting? What are, what are some top tips? I've got hey, hey, with the monkeys running around in my head now. Well, if you think about, let's think about the way that we behave around the coronavirus as an example. That's how we started out this episode. Washing your hands has never been so important. And maybe that's a little bit in in resilience terms. That's about protecting yourself. If you have been out there in a place where all the germs are, you put your hands in your mouth and then the germs are in your gob. That social media is a very noxious place. And there's a small number of people who do the majority of the damage just toxic individuals. 
and you should have no compunction at all about blocking them as soon as they start to make you feel that way. Now, I know that's difficult if it's someone who's very close to you, but I'm talking about the casual stuff. You know, don't read the comments, don't read the comments, don't read the comments. Oh, I read the comments. I wish I hadn't read the comments. <laughs> well, at least if you block the persistent offenders, then that's one way of keeping yourself a little bit safer. Mm. So wash your emotional hands. Yeah. We talked about this before that I said that I don't, I wasn't listening to CoronaCast and you were listening to it just about every day. That for me was, I knew that it was a bit of a trigger and that it was a bit of a, a black hole that I could get swallowed down. Or maybe another way of saying it is just thinking about our last last week's episode on mindfulness, being mindful of what your triggers are and protect yourself, create that barrier. Absolutely. And at the same time, I mean, of course you were listening to Corona Cast because you wanted to know the up-to-date information and you wanted it accurate and you wanted to be sure that what you were listening to was good, solid information. So kind of paradoxically, I suppose the next tip, which I, I think we could illustrate um, with that story with Andy, if you remember, who in his mid-50s was diagnosed with ADHD. And that kind of made sense of his life in a way that nothing had before. And that was just on the basis of information. He learned something about himself that explained a lot about the way that he'd found certain things difficult. So stay informed, but be really selective about where you're getting your information from. Yeah. Find good quality information. Yeah. Okay. What else? I suppose the other one is I've been getting a lot of people wanting to stop smoking because they're aware that, you know, respiratory weakness, it's a bad time not to have good respiratory health with the coronavirus. In a sense, what they're doing is noticing about themselves where they need to work, like you on your treadmill that you were talking about last episode. Yeah, but I'm cross about it. <laughs> I didn't say you had to like it. People often don't like stopping smoking. They know they need to. They feel great when they've done it. I'm sure you will. So what's the, the tip there? Do what you know is good for you, even if you're unhappy. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people recognize a connection between motivation and behavior, but most people want to increase their motivation to change their behavior. It's much faster just to change your behavior and that changes your motivation. When you get good at that treadmill stuff and you remember how hard you struggled right at the beginning, I know you'll feel a great sense of, of achievement. And I'm not saying that you'll necessarily be, ever be your favorite thing, but it gets less hard the more you do something. That's just the nature of a habit, isn't it? So is this one about motivation and behavior or is it about keeping fit, keeping healthy, build your physical resilience and then your emotional resilience responds as well. Well, that's true as well, isn't it? I think we all know that when we're feeling down, you know, if you're ill and it's the middle of winter and you haven't seen the sun in weeks and, you know, and, and, and you can feel very low, your mood can be very low as well. And conversely, when it's a beautiful sunny day and you can go down to the beach and soak up the sunshine and have a splash around, you feel that in your body and that reflects itself in your mind. Okay. What else? Judy was very eloquent in the last episode, talking about acceptance, talking about coming to terms with what's going on. And I suppose that's what Gordon and Sue did, wasn't it? That they just accepted that this had happened and they didn't try and make excuses for it. And they didn't blame other people and they weren't blaming themselves. They were taking responsibility, but they weren't beating themselves up. They were just accepting that that is the reality. And I think when people come to terms with the coronavirus just recognize it for what it is, then it gets a little bit easier to deal with. Yeah. And Judy talked about allow yourself to feel what you feel. Don't wallow, but allow yourself to have those emotions. 
something around giving yourself permission. Yes, and recognising that your thoughts are not reality. They're thoughts and they're real, but they're not reality. And just observing them and not trying to push them away, not trying to get rid of them because they're unhealthy, but just observe them. It's called metacognition, and it's a very helpful skill. And then I suppose the other thing would be around a little bit related to that is around knowing yourself that we are all different and that just because we think that someone else ought to be this way or that way, you know, they're they're a clean freak or they're a slob because they've got a different standard from us. That's not helpful. That's just not helpful at all. You know, focusing on yourself and thinking that your version of the world is a version of the world. It's not the world. Our difference makes us powerful. It's through diversity of persona, of opinion, of traits that we become stronger, can approach situations and that we can learn. I've learned a lot from people who think differently about things than I do. I probably haven't learned very much from people who are just echoing the same beliefs that I have and the same attitudes. Yeah, and it's very easy, I think, to stay in an enclave of people who think the way that you do. And, I mean, we've seen how badly that can go wrong with what's happened in America over the last little while as well. But it's through exposure to difference that I think we accept difference. So accept yourself and know yourself. And I've probably got them in the wrong order, I suppose, because you can't accept yourself until you know yourself and recognise what it is about you that are your strengths. And maybe that sometimes your, your greatest strength is your greatest weakness, perhaps, What's that lovely quote from Leonard Cohen? Ring the bells that still ring. Forget your perfect offering. There's a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Or that Japanese art where they take a bowl, a silver bowl, and they repair the cracks with gold so that you can see where it over time it's been cracked and misshapen and lost its integrity. So they're not trying to hide it. They're not trying to pretend that things are perfect. We are all broken and we are all fixed with gold. And we're all fancy monkeys. <laughs> Maybe we're fancy monkeys with bowl haircuts or something. <laughs> In this episode, we've talked about some of our back catalogue. So if you want to go and have a listen to that, season two, episode nine, Thank You Mind on mindfulness, the Christmas special, which was season two, episode five, special guest Santa. Season two, episode four, Down the Rabbit Hole. So that's Gordon and Sue and how they got into the cult and how they got out of it again. And season two, episode one, Divorce, Breaking Up is Hard and how you can get through it emotionally and legally. You also mentioned Andy and ADHD, which is season one, episode 10, When We're Different. That's a wrap on our season two of the Bloom podcast. If you have a great story or you know someone who does, please get in contact. You can email us at steve at bloomcast.com.au or find us on the socials. There you go again, my email address. No one knows how to spell Susie. (laughs) Thanks everyone for listening and we'll catch you soon with season three.